Hello, folks. Welcome to the Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price. I'm your host. I'm going to get to a couple of the typical threads in an intro, and then I'll introduce today's participant, and then we'll get started. If you're listening to the Sacred Speaks, thank you. It's now available on YouTube. Go over to YouTube and type the Sacred Speaks into the search bar. You'll be directed to the page. Like and subscribe to the page. I'm trying to build it, and your attention would be much appreciated. Thank you. Also, the Sacred Speaks has a website, thesacredspeaks.com. Check that out. All the podcasts and information to find out more about this process is presented there. The Sacred Speaks is brought to you by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences, a boutique integrative practice that my wife, Leela Scott Price, and I started many years ago. And we are growing and expanding. We've also got a YouTube page. We started doing a panel discussion with all the clinicians involved in the practice. And that's been a lot of fun. And it's been exciting to talk about uh, sometimes complex and oftentimes interesting topics as far as we're concerned. Uh, look the center up at thecenterforhas.com and you'll be directed to get centered on that page. Also, um, the theme music for the podcast is from Modern Nations. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. And uh, as far as updates are concerned, I've been talking about a class I'm teaching with author Brian Murarescu. Uh, the class starts April 27th. Look in the resources listed below. And you'll be directed to the page at the Young Center of Houston, younghouston.org, and sign up for that class. Brian's going to come on out for class number three. We're going to use his book as a reference for the entire class and dig into religion, the mysteries, traditions, and uh, uh, psychedelics used in religious sacrament starting a long, long time ago. <laughs> um, okay, is that it? Yes. So today's podcast is by far the most controversial podcast I've ever released. Welcome. Um, it is shocking, and it is wild to contemplate. So I want to talk a little bit about the the process involved in uh, in, in this, this podcast and what's important about bringing something like this to light. As a researcher, one of the things I learned when I was doing my dissertation is how to bracket. I would have to basically take any of my preconceived ideas and put them to the side as best I could to truly learn what the participant that I was interviewing was really trying to communicate. We know that in any kind of human communication, if you are formulating your own argument while you're listening to somebody, you are affecting the outcome of that argument because you are actually just arguing. You're not listening. So I urge anybody who's listening to this podcast to do that, to listen and follow the thread of the, of the participant, Dr. Amon Hillman. He offers um, challenging information, at least it was for me, and it is he he tells us he tells us to do one thing which is go to the sources and as we all know that's a pretty difficult reality for most of us um anytime even in the political landscape of today to go to the actual sources is not something we practice very well collectively um and even more so difficult when you involve ancient texts that are in languages that one may not speak but the sources are out there the sources are available so if this podcast interests you if it offends you, if it creates anxiety, go to the sources. Check it out. That's what I'm going to do. 
I am, this whole process is about researching and I intend to follow the threads that are offered and create my own conclusions based upon talking to folks who have worked through this territory, religious, spiritual, um, psychological, historic, and the like, uh, for a long time. And this participant was introduced to me by, uh, by Brian Murescu. Uh, thanks, Brian. And I'm grateful here. This has been uh, mind-expanding, to say the least, and quite anxiety-provoking to, uh, to be, to be uh, light. <laughs> um, so a, a couple of ideas here. I was really thinking about this this podcast and 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 why why this is important and why this is interesting. Well, it's important for one. Uh, I'm a psychotherapist, and one of the things I do is listen to people. I don't judge them. I don't play detective. I don't try to figure out if they're lying. I listen to them and engage and build relationships. And what we do is we um, oftentimes in therapy we look back so that we can look forward. We look back and we recollect fragments that had been dropped through the course of our lives, that had to be sacrificed through the course of our lives, and try to reintegrate, to reconstitute, to remember what was lost. We look back in a family history. We look back in earlier stages of life where somebody might have had to drop the idea of a profession or a relationship, um, or certainly uh, defense mechanisms, we call them defense mechanisms, uh, psychologically pushed aspects of one's, um, one's life to the background, to the unconscious, things like repression or denial. And we do that collectively also. If we look at this fractal, we can say, well, what we, what we do on the micro certainly is something that's done on the macro. When it comes to religious texts, it's a little more obvious because when a, when a nation would take over another nation, they destroyed their history, their art, uh, their documents. And so what we have collectively in the history of the world are fragments of um, where we've come from. And one of the things that we need to do a lot of times at look, is look at grotesque, um, unappealing, um, scary, and anxiety-provoking aspects of our collective lives. This is just like what psychotherapy is. A wise person once told me uh, in reference to psychotherapy, if you're not anxious, you're not honest. And that's part of the process, and it's part of the reasons why, uh, one of the reasons why people oftentimes are reluctant to come into therapy, because we're all aware there's something down in that cave, and to look at it is to feel terrified oftentimes, and that is this. Um, we're looking at a history that is overwhelming and confusing, but we also have evidence of repression of our body, of our religion, of our psychology. We have repression that results in devastation of our environment, of each other, and we, 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 we're, we, we're, we're a little lost at times, and we try to find the answers in technologies, in new developments, but the look back helps us understand how we are in our present life so that we can prepare and understand how we can be in our future. And it reminds me of uh, a Christmas story. We need, to re we need to revisit the ghost of our Christmas past. <laughs> And we can get right with our current present so that we can get prepared for our future. And I'm grateful for Dr. Amon Hillman and his work. I stumbled upon it through this book, Dr. Uh, the Chemical Muse, although he wrote another book uh, called Original Sin, Ritual, Child Rape, and the Church. And both are interesting and challenging, as you can imagine. 
So uh, if, if you have any uh, reluctance to explore, look at, hear about, talk about childhood abuse, childhood sexual abuse or sexual abuse, this may not be the podcast for you. Um, I tend to talk to people um, pretty consistently about their sexual abuse. So this is a fair territory for my, um, my, my uh, uh, regular day because, as I said in the podcast, one in six, last time I looked, about one in six men have been sexually abused and one in three women have been sexually abused. And we don't tend to talk about that. We don't tend to recollect the reality of the existence of sexual abuse and atrocities when it comes to our sexual development and our sexual lives. So as far as this podcast is concerned, um, this conversation represents that, an invitation to begin to turn over some stones that have yet to be turned over and to look at things that are difficult to look at, to look at realities that are difficult to look at. So before we start, I want to allow for um, Terrence McKenna to have a voice from the past to help us navigate the future. This is a quote that Brian Murescu sent me, and I want to bring it into our conversation today. Um, again, check out his work at brianmurescu.com. His book, The Immortality Key, has been opening the gates, and I'm grateful for him and his work. Um, I'll leave it to uh, <laughs> good Papa Terrence McKenna for now, and we'll get started after this. Thanks for being here. To not know your history is to be amnesic. I mean, if you met a person who couldn't tell you where they were from 1970 to 80, you would define them as a fairly damaged person. But how many people do you meet who can tell you where Western civilization was between 900 and 1600? People don't know. So since they don't know, they can be fed any shit that is out there and they don't know, they have no idea. So the way to gain power is to reclaim a command of history. Like for instance, I remember when uh, the Vietnam War was breaking out and I was in school at the University of California at Berkeley and, and the professor said, we all have to read Thucydides. We all have to read uh, about the war against Syracuse, which was in Sicily and how it destroyed Greek democracy and how it allowed the ascendancy of the dictatorship of the 30. And why did this happen? Because the Athenian citizenry could not understand the war aims because the Athenian leadership didn't understand clearly what the war aims were. All the mistakes of the Vietnam War were repeated in or, or occurred in this war, which was fought well before the year zero. But you tell most people to read Thucydides and they just give you a strange look. Well, it's not because we want to be obscurantists or want to carry on conversations like Cambridge intellectuals. It's because we want to know what to do with the future. And the first thing you do with the future is you don't make the stupid mistakes that were made in the past. Thank you for, for making the time. I've been excited to talk to you. As, as the listener may know, I connected with Brian Mororescu, who then linked me up with you, and I'm going further down the rabbit hole. And that now I've read you know, one and a half of your books and a couple of the papers that you submitted to me. And of course, I can't wait to get to more of it. But today, we're going to get in certainly to your first book, The Chemical Muse, 
and expand beyond that and maybe hopefully get into some of the second original sin. But I, I have so many questions. I got, I got a lot of stuff, man. So okay. uh, as far as introduction is concerned, I want to read your bio. Uh, Dr. D.C. Almond Hillman earned his MS in bacteriology and a PhD in classics from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he specialized in ancient Greek and Roman medicine and pharmacy. His first book, The Chemical Muse, was published with St. Martin's Press immediately after his dissertation committee forced him to delete all the references to recreational drugs from his thesis. Dr. Hillman also wrote Original Sin, a work about the use of drug-induced child, child rape in early Christian ritual. The publication of The Chemical Muse inspired the production of a lengthy History Channel documentary on the history of drug use in the ancient world. After an official inquiry by the Catholic Church into allegations of demon possession, Dr. Hillman was fired from St. Mary's University of Minnesota. He continues to write about the use of drugs in ancient mystery cults and tutors ancient Greek online. And we are here, if I can find you again, I'm on my computer stuff. Two books, first, Chemical Muse, and the second is Original Sin. And Amen, I'm ready and eager to dive in with you. Uh, again, thank you. Thank you, thank you, I really appreciate it, John. So let's do it. The first, I just want to start with general because I've actually broken this up into four different modes where we look at um, bio in it, the biology or biography, um, then some of the psychology, then the social and political aspects, and then more into symbolic and religious aspects of your work. Um, I think that it kind of presents a decent um, guide rail into all this work because we can kind of maneuver all over the place. So the first thing I want you to start with um, some of the general general pieces. I'm telling you, I have papers everywhere, Amon. Um, beginning with background, right? Not um, I, I want background not only from your own process, but but mainly how you get to some of these ideas because they're controversial. I mean, you started this work in controversy with your dissertation committee. So the two pieces I think are really interesting is the process of maybe starting with your dissertation, how you how you got to some of these ideas, but I'm also very interested in your process as far as how you decipher and engage these ancient texts. And I'd like for the listener to know how obscure the texts are that you tend to dig into. I think something that Brian said to me is that Amon is a fellow who maybe about four or five people in the world can get into the kind of texts that you get into. So. If we could slowly go through and let people um, connect with this process, I'd love that. So pick pick either lane. Okay, okay. What I'll do is I'll talk about um, the text that I uh, – we'll start with the second question, the second area. Um, right. I had a very good advisor when I was in graduate school who told me um, there's three things that you need to know. Number one, primary sources. Number two, primary sources. Number three, primary sources. And it was at that point that I realized, oh, wow, I really need to, uh, you know, there's all this vast literature about, out there about who said what and did what and analyzing. It doesn't matter. Go to the originals. And I had an interest in both the sciences and the, the humanities. And I had a very uh, influential professor approach me and say, hey, uh, we've got a whole bunch of texts that are um, that are on the science side that nobody ever reads uh, galen and there's a bunch of magic stuff and you know he didn't even know all the details right of what was out there 
um, and he said, you should maybe put together your science and your, uh, your interest in translation uh, to, to uh, look at this stuff. So that's, I really got to all of this through the gateway of ancient medicine. I was interested in ancient medicine. Here popped up all of these texts that would, nobody's ever translated. They're still not translated. I have thousands of pages in my library, thousands of pages of ancient Greek that has never been translated, thousands. And I've got about 4,000 pages worth of drugs, just drugs. I, I think maybe before going down the rabbit trail of whether it's Ruck or Murarescu's work, I mean, I had these suspicions about drugs, but most people aren't aware of the, the, the scope and breadth of the influence of drugs. And, and, and what does that word even mean to you when you talk about drugs in ancient Greece? Yeah. And what is the perspective that you have to look at it from? So yeah. as I'm focusing on primary text, I realize you have to get step into the feet, into the position into the body in, in that time period, and you have to look at it, and you have to say, what are these doctors talking about? And well, what about what kind of drugs are there? Let me just give you an example that'll hit everybody right to the core. Just go for the top, the archetype, right? Communion. Communion is a drug in antiquity. A drug that is produced by a person to be taken by another. That is communion. Literally, within the mystery religions of antiquity, it's a drug that the human body produces that's passed from one to another that causes healing of some sort and a state of mm, disembodiment, a state of unity with the cosmos, almost a cosmic wedding, right? So this is the kind of thing that these texts are talking about. The actual instruments that are used in these, and by instruments, I mean the drugs that are used. So just so that we can see the, you know, we're pulling away from the planet and we're seeing the planet go away from a distance and we say, where's your mountain now? You know, it's just a marble out of this. That perspective that Byron talks about is the perspective that I suddenly have the literature when I was coming of age in my studies and somebody handed me a whole bunch of texts that nobody had translated. And I started reading them and I thought, wow, you, you know, so I wrote a dissertation to get back to your question. I wrote yeah. a dissertation and it was, uh, had to have all this bits of recreational drugs removed because I came up against that ceiling that's there within our culture. Right. So the culture cements a perspective. You were talking about perspective. A culture cements a perspective. And I suddenly am breaking out of it because I'm seeing drugs and things that, are, that were there that people didn't want. The head of my department said, how can you possibly say that the Romans used recreational drugs? And suddenly at that moment in my lifetime, I realized I could see everything both past, present, and future, I realized what she was saying was so ridiculous. It was so ridiculous that I had to pop the bubble. I had to show them. I had to bring them in and show them. 
And so I started digging and digging and digging. And you are not going to believe the things that I found. Not going to believe. All through the, all through the avenue of medicine and pharmacology and, and uh, uh, language, the language cements, the linguistics is where it's all at. If you can't, uh, um, if, if you're not reading the apocalypse right now in ancient Greek, you're not reading it because it's a religious document for those with ears to hear, right? And it's got a ton of, what's at the end of the apocalypse? I'm sorry, let me just add this because this is, these are the kind of texts that I'm working with. What's at the end of, so I'm looking at this communion. I'm looking at this thing that's going on. And I'm reading early church fathers talking about, oh man, these Ophites. Do you know who the Ophites are? No. The Ophites were a sect of Christians. Nobody, hardly anybody knows who these people were, right? But they, we know that early on they were considered a sect of Christians who followed the way of Cain. And their founder was, or one of their primary members was Simon Magus, right? And the way of Cain, you can also call the, the Sodom, the path of Sodom. And it involves, ultimately, the drinking of a child's ejaculate in a religious performance by one who has been anointed, who's called the Christos, <laughs> right? So you can see why all of a sudden there's a, pullback this caused a huge reverberation paul remember paul's immune to viper venom i don't know i didn't it, yeah he is he is nobody reads the bible anymore john why does <laughs> nobody read the bible i know man. i'm sorry <laughs> no like um first of all i have been reading some of your work for a little while now so i have been desensitized to the intensity that uh, some of these ideas can hit somebody when they when they receive okay. it. So, because these are uh, to to anybody, it reminds me of this. Um, I was sitting with a colleague who's a psychologist at a gathering once. He was talking about his father, who's an anthropologist that wrote a narrative about a tribe that lives off an island near New Zealand, and I think it's called the Magic Flute. The, the book is called The Magic Flute. It is about children who drink the ejaculate of the warrior men in mm. order to uh, somehow take in their, their you know, masculinity and the, to be initiated into uh, manhood. To receive their essence, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, right. and that, even that is an idea that not a lot of people <laughs> come, come upon. So... Here you're talking about a pretty well-known tradition, worldwide well-known tradition, and these hidden aspects of it that hit somebody right between the eyes. So how do you come to that, that, that these uh, Ophites were, were, were in fact doing that? Oh, uh, there's uh, one of the early church fathers, uh, Epiphanius, I think it was, um, uh, is writing a work on... Um, uh, against these were popular at the time against heresies. So there's you know the church is not second, third, fourth century A.D. The church is not unified at all, and there's all these schisms and all these different you know uh, infightings. And this group believes this, and this group just from day one it was like this because Simon Peter 
is fighting Simon Magus for the power and control because Simon Magus, who is a follower of the Christ, the morning star, because we've all been reading Enoch. I'm sorry. It's the first century. We've all been reading Enoch, right? And Enoch is the guy who's talking about going to the different levels of heaven and the, the anointed, the, the one who's supposed to come, set everything straight, set up the kingdom and get rid of Romans. Supposed to do that, right? Right. We've all been reading this stuff. And so much so that Peter quotes it. Again, I'm sorry to keep going back to the Bible, but this is all kind of the no, go know, back to the Bible, area I, of I, research. Yeah. The, the drugs in the Bible are fantastic. That's what you... Uh, okay. Anyway, the um, so everybody's reading Enoch, and what we know from Enoch, like what Peter knows and what Jude knows, is you can't follow the way of Cain, right? And what is the way of Cain? And so that's why these early church fathers are concerned, because Jude comes out and he says you can't do this. Get rid of your things offered to idols. They talk about it as food, but the translation is so terrible. It's always sex. <laughs> Right, he ch he charges them with sex, Jude. He's talking to the Christians. He says, "Stop having sex, and stop eating idols, eating things offered to idols." We translate. We don't know what to do. They were consuming excreta, vaginal excreta, and Simon Magus, this this magician, if you want to call him, had a woman named Helen who distributed the communion to the community. Right. Well, this is new information for a lot of people. It's magic. It's magic. Yeah. It's all magic. You go back and look at the magic. It's all magic. So let's do that. Let's go back. I mean, you're talking about drugs in the Bible. You're so. Um, let's start with sources. What you said. Always go to those sources. Aside from the Greek, you and I talked about uh, whether learning Latin or Greek is a way to go, and you were talking about reading Greek. To, right. to really have access to the New Testament. Right. Where are the drugs? Where are the sex? And why the deception, right? Why conceal? And, and, and I, mean, I think I know why, but how to conceal something so uh, intensely overwhelming um, that seemingly was pretty accepted in culture at that point? Right, right. And it's, it, uh, again, perspective. It's all perspective. you got to shatter that Christian lens that you, is built around you and put yourself back in that pagan environment to see what these authors are actually talking about, right? To see what they really like. like so let's shatter that lens. In the, book of, in the book of Revelation, the Protestants call it Revelation, the uh, Catholics call it the Apocalypse, because that's really what's called Greek, right? In the book of the Apocalypse, the main bad guy is a bad woman. It's a woman, right? And if you look at chapter 17 and 18, the main bad woman is there offering the cup of her sexual juices. So how does that get obscured? Yeah, how does that get, how do we miss that? Yeah. Right? How, how did we miss that Jesus was arrested in a public park in a pre-dawn raid with a naked boy and had something on his face that the Greek text refers to in the Septuagint as semen? Jesus had it all over his face. 
but it had a funny color to it. it. Had something in it. Semen mixed with something. How did that get past anybody? Did, did anybody notice that Jesus, this is my number one research question, John, right now. This is my number one. I am chasing this, chasing this to find an answer. Somebody must find out why Jesus was arrested with, in a public park before sunrise with a naked boy, which the text describes him twice. Mark, it's in the Bible. I'm so, I get so zealous because nobody reads the Bible anymore. Mm-hmm. Read the Bible. It says he was there. It says twice he was naked. It says he had a seam done. And people say, oh, whew, there it is. It's some kind of sheet that covered him up, right? No. On the medical side, if you look in Galen, the seam done is a medicated wrap that you give to a boy who's administering an antidote in a mystery rite. And that boy's antidote comes through his ejaculation, prepubertal. And the doctors describe, Galen has a section of his antidotes that describes what prepubertal boy semen is like. What it looks like, what its texture is, what it's useful for, what religion uses it, and uh, milk from uh, uh, young girls that they were milking using viper venom, which apparently has a prolactin, uh, makes sense, has a prolactin um, uh, activity, viper venom. And so could that have acted? I was talking with a toxinologist in Australia about this, but uh, we were trying to figure out. Chasing down these, the chemistry of this stuff is is very difficult, very difficult. Going back to what you were talking about, the pagan writers just culturally speaking what is going on with all these sexual rituals that seem to be all over the sex and drugs seem to be kind of common in these cults yeah i can tell you for a fact um on the magical side which is like late bronze age okay about 11 about say just to so you can keep it straight a thousand bc there's this big influence this big influx of this thing called magic and this thing called magic, we can trace back to the woman who created it. She was a Colchian queen. That is a queen in modern-day Georgia, okay, on the uh, uh, east side of the Black Sea. And she was a queen in this region. And she came up before there were epics written about Achilles and Odysseus, before anybody ever gave a, anything about those guys, there were epics about the woman Medea. Because she figured out how to use venoms within medicine, the practice of medicine itself, how they interact with the body, how, the, you know, how you can change your menstrual cycle using venoms. Um, she landed, she was on an expedition, she landed in Italy. And where she landed, they brought out some guy who had been bitten in a marsh by one of the local marsh snakes. And they brought him out and they had... You know, he's a, he's a goner, right? He's a goner. And Medea was able to give him a curative from her own body. Says she reaches inside her own undergarment to pull it out of her copos where she mixed her drugs. That's her vagina. Okay, this is not the world we live in, right? No. But it's, wow. 
she was mixing drugs in her vagina. Right? There's even accounts of snakes, putting small snakes in there, covering them with oil, putting a small snake in there and letting it run, uh, run around because apparently the does something. This is the kind of stuff that because my advisor told me, the Romans wouldn't do such things. I, I, I said, okay, my job for the rest of my life is to find the things that the Romans wouldn't do and show the world what they wouldn't do. And you wouldn't believe what, what opened up. But again, the question stands, what, what is it about people who have translated these texts that have neglected something so uh, different, I mean, totally different than certainly how we even imagine these experiences today? Jesus's naked boy wasn't neglected. It was answered by the sixth century when the Pope came out and declared, hey, this is, uh, that was a cousin or something. <laughs> you know, with a couple of problems. The early church had to iron over a couple of problems. One of them was that Mary was a prostitute, so-called, right? And Mary has an instrument called an alabastron, which is a medicated dildo. And if you go look at Nonus, a late antique uh, source writing in Greek, he tells us there's a reason that Mary had that dildo and used it on Jesus. When she, he did, she, he ejaculated right because it's a oh i'm sorry this is antiquity and in antiquity dildos are medical applicators right because they know there's certain things you can't get past your stomach mm. right certain drugs you can't get past your stomach so you have to put it on a dildo because you know it's got to be absorbed in your you know is this for a, a somehow. suppository it's like a suppository but um in a way that involves uh what's often depicted as a sexual act. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a, there's a strange, John, there's a strange line that's never drawn in antiquity between medicine, health, and um, sexuality. Uh, it's all about... Um, yeah, they have a very strange way of approaching that, where you can't see there's cure. So the sex, they're performing sexual acts. And if you get a, if you have a certain problem, you can go to an a temple and have an incubation, and a priestess will give you an anal probe with whatever medicine that you need on it. And they're burning incense that the temples on. Uh, Cyprus, you could smell it. That's how the sailors found their way to the island. You know, they sail, excuse me, they sail to the odor of the burning incense, right? The burning uh, 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 botanicals. So you can go to the temple and you can have this. So get, having a priestess put a, insert a dildo as a medical device covered with drugs isn't the biggest, isn't the oddest thing you know, in antiquity. So it's not something that you'd be worried about, right? But for them to turn it into a ceremony whereby we have examples of men being masturbated while it's happening, um, to the accompaniment of singing, you know, because it's a religious event, right? And supposedly the singer has more power with her words than she does with everything that's going on well this so is that's that's the type of medicine we're talking 
But that type of medicine is really emblematic of what happens currently in uh, shamanic territory. I mean, the the Icaros, uh, when I've sp spoken with shaman, they talk about singing that happens, and the singing is really one of the curative aspects of the process. Yes. But again, I, 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 I mean, all this stuff is pretty shocking, there's no doubt, because it's, I don't have a language, one of the things you and I were emailing about, I don't have the language system that helps support this, but I certainly don't have the exposure to the texts. So a lot of times what I do is I go, shit, man, I, I, don't, I don't even know how to look at this up. You know, I can't, uh, that's one of the difficult, you can't Google this stuff. You know, to, to put it clearly, you speak and read languages that the vast majority of people will never have access to. And so fundamentally, there's like a, there's an element of trust, right? That's like, okay, Amon, you got to guide me into this stuff and we got to yeah. do it in a way that, that recognizes that I'm a freaking like child and I, 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 I've, I've accumulated decades of culture that associates some of the words, whether it's Jesus or uh, the morality of sex, I associate those with certain psychological, uh, imagistic, and emotional or body aspects. I have a feeling it evokes and it's like, oh shit. So I'm sure you're met a lot of times with some confused, if not really concerned uh, faces by the people who are receiving the information you're giving them. But Oh, you, you know, on an extreme to that, can I just tell you, I found myself in a position in my life where I was sitting at a conference table and a downtown building in Minneapolis with an attorney standing over me, yelling at me, are you the God Pan? He just kept repeating it over and over again. I was looking at my attorney, looking at him. I, I, is this crazy? Is it happening? Objection, 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 objection. Oh, I had eight hours of a grilling that implied that I was a Satanist and a worker of magic and an opener of portals. And uh, uh, no, you know what I am? I'm a reader of sources. That's what I am. And this stuff is disturbing. Yes. It's disturbing, but it's there. So I reached out to 30 seminaries. Once I was fired from St. Mary's for... Uh, alleged you know uh, uh it was alleged that i w passed through a door i flew through a door um hovered over a student's bed paralyzed her roommate with my hand kind of like a jedi trick mm -hmm. and uh had intercourse with her that was alleged formally at a, at a meeting of the catholic church that had to look into um, accusations of demon possession and portal opening. I don't know why they're big on portal opening, but they were. That's kind of the backlash that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. This is yeah. a backlash to knowledge is what it is. Well, I'm, and I'm just talking about the, you know, Joe Schmo that's out there that's like, holy shit, what did he just say? You know, it, and of course, then that's... Um, magnified and amplified and then put into a social or political context and there you've got fire uh, so right right this is some i mean uh, 
this is some intense material we're talking about. And, and I yeah. realize I, I'm imagining that, you know, sources have been a critique of anybody who's stumbled into your work where they're like, where, where are the sources? Where are they? And we, 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 I think that's important um, to state maybe even at the beginning, because what I, one of the criticisms I know of your work is it like, show us the sources, where are the sources? So what do you tend to say to that when people push up against you? I, uh, I say exactly uh, what needs to be said. What sources do you want? They're all out there. You said a minute ago, none of this stuff is, well, you may not be able to read the ancient Greek, but Nonus is online. Go look him up. Nonus is a source who talks about Mary using a dildo on Jesus. He had an orgasm that she wiped away with her hair. And the reason she put it in her hair was that was where the communion substance went. The Medusa has the poison hair. Notice says, notice says, by the way, that vinegar, you take it for what it is. It's Notice. Take it for what it is. But Notice, in his paraphrase of John, says, not only talks about little boys that were with Jesus and the milk from the little boy that was on Jesus's mouth. Okay. Nonus, you want a source? This is what I say to people. Go to the primary sources. I'll tell you whatever you want. He says it was an antidote, that cup they gave Jesus on the cross. Everybody knows Jesus didn't die from crucifixion. Jesus did not die from crucifixion, correct? Uh, I, quite frankly, I don't know. Yeah, and you want to think the opposite, right? You think he did? No, he died before. He died before he, the crucifixion would have killed him. They noted it. The Romans noted it and said he died prematurely, screaming out in thirst. And Nonus says that cup that they offered Jesus had the antidote to the viper venom he had taken in the garden. Ta-da! Just follow reason. Follow the pharmacology. You don't. You know? well, let, let me bat this around with you then, because immediately what comes up yeah. for me is, well, uh, hi, I'm John. I can write any shit about anybody and it yeah. can be out there in history. I mean, I can go on a website. And, so what's yes. different about what was written then versus the kind of bullshit that people write today that could be totally inflammatory, totally false, so on and so forth? Right, right, right. It's not about truth. It's about evidence. And what I'm trying to tell my audience is the same thing I'm telling you, John, when I say, when we talk about perspective, what I'm trying to tell my audience is look at the science. The science is impenetrable. Forget about what somebody said and their opinion. And Jesus is this, Jesus is that. Look at the science. There's pharmacy. There's pharmacology and toxicology in the text. They're preserved like like a bug is preserved in amber, like its DNA is preserved in amber, the science is there in the text. And if you look, you can wind the whole thing up by the invisible network of the science that is behind it. Don't forget about thinking about Jesus. Just go to the sources and look at the science behind them. If he has a venom in him where they're using the antidotes, the doctors talk about the use of antidotes for this venom that you either have to get from a young boy or a young priestess, okay? After it's been administered. Why is Jesus arrested in a public park 
with a naked boy. Forget about the implications. What is the history telling us? Just and it's all I'm doing is literally working with the text. Literally working with the text. So t- tell me again. It's uh, it's Mark because I want to read this. You and I talked about this. Sure. Mark what? Fourteen, chapter fourteen, verses fifty-one and fifty-two, and this 14. is after he's taken when Jesus yes. is in Gethsemane. Just to set it up for your audience. It's when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is a public park. And it's roughly before sunrise, which is when you perform mystery rites. And this is what happens. Go ahead. So what it says is a certain young man was, this is 51 through 52. A certain young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. Right. So now, I mean, we could even deconstruct that. Like, how how do you get what you got from? Because this is this is my, right. You know what I'm currently into. Correct. And so, and this one two little sentences has been boggling your mind. But w- w- this is a massive translation that I thought was pretty reputable. Sure. Uh, so, how do you get what you got about you know semen on the face and all that? Right. Well, um, if you look at all the gospel accounts, not just Mark, but if you look at all of them, they'll have different aspects, different elements of the whole arrest of Jesus when he was arrested and taken off. Uh And so the semen is in another gospel, but it talks about it's dripping and it uses the word hyma for it as if blood, as if it were blood. And if you look in Ezekiel, Ezekiel, the prophet, Written in our earliest document, the earliest we have from a form of Ezekiel, the prophet, is Greek. It's the Septuagint. It's the earliest form we have. And there's plenty of argument that says this is the earliest text, right? That the Hebrew in 900 AD is a back translation. That's the earliest Hebrew we have. People don't realize that. Well, we said Dead Sea Scrolls. What about Dead Sea Scrolls? No. The oldest Ezekiel, Ezekiel we have is the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, Ezekiel talks about Jerusalem being uh, like a young girl who thirsts for the Egyptian man with his large horse-like penis. And he ejaculates his essence. And that word for that ejaculation is hyma. It's the very same word. In a religious context, that hyma is ejaculate. And if you put it together with the fact that we know they were using young boy ejaculate for the sake of counteracting a viper venom, because apparently viper venom knocks you out, knocks you out of the park, mm-hmm. especially if you had it ejaculated. So you're talking about uh, what you, because I'm thinking about process right now. You have yeah. to assimilate a lot of different texts because th- now we're into almost a linguistic, the, uh, 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 an act of language. Right, right, right. Would you speak to that for a second? And I want to return to this because, again, on this, when I started, I was talking about your process. 
It's yeah. not as if translation is a one-to-one -one correspondence. You don't just read something. You have to look at what was happening colloquially, what was going on culturally, uh, you know, references that people are making, you know, like, um, uh, well, I don't know what I want to say, but you need, I can't read currently an English medical text. You know, like I'm, I'm, it's not as easy for me to engage that text because I don't know English in that way. You're talking about reading these medical, uh, alchemical or religious texts that are, are, have a language that's very old. They use uh, kind of uh, an expert's language within that language form. They're obscuring what they're writing about. Right. Uh, so, so again, talk about that part of the process. Okay. So uh, in the late 1800s, this German classicist named Otto Kern, he mm -hmm. put together, edited the fragments. He put together the fragments called the Orphic fragments. And um, if you say Orpheus, you're talking magic. So I'll, that's all I'll say. But he put together the Orphic fragments and he's noted in, in his edition, he said, hey, all of these fragments have something I'm going to call an Orphic voice, the Vox Orphica, right? And that he said uh, it really, the reader thinks it means this, but it really means this, right? And the Orphics do this all the time. They had an expression for, that their language was only for those who had ears to hear, mm -hmm. okay? So when you're performing magic, remember magic in antiquity is all about image. It's all about image and the creation and the manipulation of image. And that hence the idolatry. That's what idolatry is, is the crafting and the use of image. Say, say more about that. Uh, so the magician works via um a higher order physics that we don't understand, but somehow that's controlled by image. This is how they looked at it, image. And you can induce and invoke image through uh, so song, okay? Do you see? Through song. And part of what you can induce is healing. You can induce healing through song. Yeah, right? Because that's just how the cosmos works. It's the image that you're bringing in. And the magician knows that. So the magician creates a language whereby the images can only be manipulated by the magician or by those the magician wants. It's the kind of the equivalent of, an, of a, a Hippocratic. The Hippocratics are the same thing. Don't, don't say it was just the magicians being weird. The Hippocratics wouldn't let you um, practice medicine it was only within their own caste. No, no, no. This, mm -hmm. There's only a certain number of families that do that. And you can't. So did they have a, a secret language to hide their to hide their goods? No, they just refused to pass them on. Right. So they would make caste. The, mag the Magi did the same thing, but they did so through language. They passed on their teaching. So Otto Kern, this German uh, classicist, says uh, there's something in these texts called we're going to call it the Orphic voice. And. Um, some of the texts actually say this is how you write Orphic. So when we say when he said Orphic voice, he wasn't just pulling something out of his out of his theoretical noggin. He was saying these things actually they refer to this language in ancient ancient texts. It's called Orphic, 
right? And there's five different dialects of it, according to the magical papyri, right? So that's what I started chasing down was the Orphic. I was like, ooh, I got to, I got to read, I got to figure that, I got to read this stuff, right? I got to crack it. And then I got very fortunately and following the muse, I went right to the, uh, um, the Renaissance and the guys in the Renaissance, I'll stop here, but the guys in the Renaissance uh, recognized the Orphic Code and um, transmitted it in their writings. Um, Petrarch, I'll just say, has a book called The Secretum where he uh, uses the Orphic um, Code. Of, it's a magic code via image. It's a code via image. And it was actually written out, but not with letters. We have one surviving example in the P... No, there's like three. Three surviving examples in the PGM. The Papyri Graeci Magici, the Greek magical papyri. This is a bunch of stuff that the Christians, when they started throwing away all their magic texts, because their teachers were telling them, their leaders were telling them, throw away all your magic, right? So they were throwing away their texts. Somebody collected them in Egypt. We've got a garbage dump in Egypt that has a bunch of them. And they show the writing. You can actually see the Orphic writing itself. It's be the the earliest writing of the Magi, you could call it. When you say the image, we, uh, what I think is that there's some. God, this is going to be clunky. There's some kind of um, universal response or uh, reaction internally, subjectively, that happens to somebody when they experience something. Is that what you mean by image? By like the, the, the magic is to evoke internally an image. That's at least where my mind went. Instead of me making up what it could or couldn't be, I'm going to give you an example that I've seen from antiquity. And you tell me, you tell me what it is. Cause to be honest, yeah, let's just do that. In antiquity, there's an example of a fellow who gets a, uh, imagine being tied down and being given an oral drug that made you drowsy and um, had hyoscyamine in it. So you became somewhat uh, um, just on the border of psychotic. Okay. So you're Mm -hmm. inducing a psychosis. They induce psychosis. Can you believe they did that? In antiquity, that makes sense to me. <laughs> I I don't. It does. I don't. I get it. Like, but uh, but I uh, I may kind of fetishize the the people in antiquity because there was more of like, I don't know. My 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 fetishizing them is like there was more imagistic connection. It was less rational and concrete and literal. It was more intuitive. So that's that's why that kind of makes... And also the different viewpoint that was taken to psychosis in the first place. And it's not some kind of pathological, because I, 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 just deconstructing the word pathology in the first place, it doesn't... The root is not what we've turned it into. So I can kind of start to get around that would be something that would be a, uh, a kind of divine experience. But go on. Sorry to interrupt. Definitely. And what would you do? You'd, be, you'd make a great magician because um, Pythagoras, for example, travel around to the Magi just to find out the drugs they were using. Mm-hmm. Um, Pliny tells us that they had, that whenever the local potentate um, I would have somebody that they wanted to question, that they really needed question. This is like in a, 
conspiracies. When you got a conspiracy going on, it's to take out the latest tyrant and you captured somebody and you want to know the truth out of them, you call the Magi because they have a drug that they can give a person again that causes them to be, it says it caused them to be completely insane and they're afraid, their, their fear level is off the roof and they will tell you their most intimate secrets. To, for, if you suggest it, this is where the image comes in. If you as a magus can project the image to this insane raving person, you can reach into their soul and you can pull out whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Right? So um, that's the level of when I read that, I was like, wow, that's some, that's some you know, sophisticated pharmacology slash religion slash medicine. Now you add the sexual factor into that where the priestess who is healing you is set is bringing you to sexual climax while you're tied down in a psychotic state and she's over your ear, you're blindfolded and she's over your ear singing right that's the initiatory experience in which you're pulled out of your you're pulled out of the planet off the you know whoop up you go you see, oh, no, turn, kick it up a notch to the next dimension, right? What Byron's talking about in his way of Cain, in his book on Cain. That's what they were. Apparently, they drew pictures and stuff, you know, and talked about it. And over the, there's funny, there's one Etruscan picture. The Etruscans are into this. It becomes magic. It hides itself in magic, right? So that in the Middle Ages, that's why they find the woman in the closet with a broomstick, with the medicine on her armpits and on her vagina, and she was doing what's called uh, uh, flying on the wings of the devil, which is an actual magic practice. And they caught this woman in her closet. Her husband uh, turned her in, and they came and got her in in the middle of the fucking act. Excuse me, the act. Sorry, curse. The act, and uh, she had that. She had a drug all over her, doing the same practices that the Etruscans are doing and drawing pictures of emerging above this guy that's tied down and and uh, has the, there's something, somebody with a probe right next to him. There's this cat, divinity, cat, like blooming thing with the face of a human <laughs> over him, right? Really great stuff. And, you know, apparently he was healed. So good for him. What is, uh, say it again, the riding on the wings of the devil? What is the... Yeah, yeah. Being able to be carried on the wings of the devil. So flying. They call it flying with the the devil. It sets us up to talk about witches, you know, the... the, But I I do want to go back. It's... it's, (laughs) Amen, you're not a guy that can be... uh, you know, held down, you move so fluidly in and out of different time periods and texts that I, I do, I can't imagine what it would be like to have read the amount of documents and, uh, and texts that you have read. It, it, it just falls out of you. Like it's fluid. So going, I have, a, I have a cheat. I have a cheat. You want to hear my cheat? I'd love to. Can I tell your audience? I shouldn't do this because I'm exposing myself. And you're never supposed to expose yourself uh, as a magician. But I have a cheat. I have a muse. Hmm. And this muse is a dead girl that I am able to talk to 
via a praxis handed down from the late Bronze Age. And she is able to resurrect in front of my very eyes the spirits of the dead. And I call them up one by one. I was talking just the other night um, with uh, Lord Byron. Mm-hmm. And she was teaching me the way of Cain through the song of Lord Byron. Isn't that interesting? It's always your sources. Always go to the mm. sources. Just read the stuff. It is, read I the mean, stuff. That's, that's the muse. Do you understand? That's the muse. For anybody listening, it reminds me of exactly, and you said, you know, we can't go into, we won't go into Carl Jung, but it does remind me of what Carl Jung was writing about in his Red Book. And one of the things that he uh, didn't discover, but he put to clinical use was what he called active imagination, where you, you, you begin to engage these figures that can come to you and they have an autonomy, they have a personality, they have perspectives. And he, he cultivated this capacity to kind of interact and he wrote the whole red book and it's a gorgeous piece of work, but it reminds me of that process that people don't do anymore because we have become very monotheistically limited in our idea of who our self is. You know, our self in modern times is ego one me the 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 me that is even though the person that i was this morning is not really the person i am right now but but so so psychologically speaking as a psychotherapist a lot of times one of the things i'm trying to do is to get people and myself included to actually interact with these different parts of um of i can't we would say self capital s one of the ways he dealt with this is he said there's a collective unconscious so it's not you it's a collection of different selves or personalities that you can access if you have the practice. How does that rate with what the ancients called demon demonology and demons and interacting with forces outside one's oneself? Is that kind of in the same ballpark? I I think it's kind of in the same ballpark. I I think that what we're dealing with is a difference in worldview. Because if I have, if you and I have the worldview where it's, it's, you know, 2,500 years ago and, you know, you say I was communing with so-and-so last night, we know what that means, right? That's the, right, right. But current day, back to this kind of mental health and psychopathology, we're, we're put into uh, the care of somebody to get us right with the world because by God, we've gone crazy. Right. Correct. Yeah. And the traditions that I am interested in, whether those be shamanic traditions or, or even my good, my, my, um, mentor and, and colleague, James Hollis, he would talk about how oftentimes people that are having these profoundly religious experiences, they're, they're kind of put back together, which means they're put back in line with the culture, whereas they're not able to kind of take that leap. And, and I, I spoke with a guy two weeks ago or a week ago who was talking about um, in the Johns Hopkins study, uh, this is Bill Richards at Johns Hopkins. He's a psychologist who wrote Sacred Knowledge. He said, in the Johns Hopkins study, when somebody comes in to do psychedelics, they, they tell them, if you think you're going to die, let yourself die. If you think you're going to go crazy, let yourself go crazy. You're safe. Right. And, <laughs> nice. And, and, and so it it kind of allows for us to 
fall into those interior, you know, interior spaces that we usually don't allow ourselves to go. And that's that's kind of what I'm hearing from what you're saying with the Magi is is that number one, there was a worldview that supported this kind of religious um, interiority that was not so totally imbued by the monotheism of you know the Abrahamic traditions. And, yeah. and it allowed for the 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 pantheon. Uh, you were, I mean, the, just the pantheon's a great example of the kind of polytheistic worldview that, like, when you were overtaken by something, you were constellating or um, communing with a, a kind of divinity, whether it was right. rage or beauty and sexuality or intellectualism. Right. Am I tracking here? Because this is the kind of shit that I totally. say, and I want to. Okay, good. So no, so, no, that's pagan. Yeah, yeah. So, so that uh, that that's what comes up for me when you talk about these kinds of. Um, uh, I, I, it's just ironic to me that that people may look at that and say, "Well, what the fuck? You were talking to Lord Byron," and I go, "No, he was talking to Lord Byron." You know, like it just depends on how you're looking at it. Right, right. If times, re- you know, if times relative. right right it doesn't matter yeah then he's sitting then he's sitting right there did you ever stumble did you stumble across a guy named eric wargo no i haven't he's written a book called time loops and i'm i'm going to talk to him and a lot my friend jeff kripal really looks at uh, likes his work but he apparently has a great theory about time and it's something you may uh connect with and enjoy you know, the ancient concepts of time are so you'd probably have a much closer, you'd feel closer to them, I'll bet you, uh, with what you've been exposed to. I'll, I'll bet you if you look at how they looked at the ion and how um, everything works through a stream and then outside that stream, and it's Pythagorean and it's all mathematic and it gets crazy, gets crazy complex. But I'll bet that would be as, uh, right up your alley. And I'll bet there's a lot of unstudied ancient music that we don't know that's mm-hmm. associated with these rites. Imagine if you were to come up with the music associated or the tones at least that were used, right? Cause do you, you do you, have you ever done that to treat your patient that you tied down and drugged I've and never he's screaming, done that. he's screaming while, while, while you forcefully ejaculate him and sodomize him. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, you didn't go that far. You didn't get that. That was the advanced course, right? Whoa. And then if you're going to bring him back, he's got to have the milk from the breast of the prepubertal priestess, who they describe her breast as just little tiny grapes. And they give out this serum, this serum, that if he doesn't have it, he's going to succumb to what they're giving him in the in the uh, colon. There's a picture of this the key is in the purple anus thank purple anus and if you think i'm kidding the templars knew about the purple anus okay this is crazy and this fell right off the shelf my muse just dropped it right off the shelf professor ruck comes to me he says if this is true what you're saying with this and this formula then we have to find purple anus he said they're using a purple dye in the communion right and we've got evidence for it on the mouth we've got evidence for it in the mouth and we've got evidence for it in the eyes oddly enough okay which makes sense if you're performing cunnilingus if you're performing cunnilingus if you're eating 
from an idol. Hmm. Ta-da. If you're eating from an idol and it's got a purple dye in it, it stains your lips. And you can imagine your eyes probably get stained too, right? But if you don't get an antidote to that stuff, it's going to cause you. And there are specific symptoms. You're going to start bleeding. It starts hemorrhaging. You start hemorrhaging with it. Okay. So, okay, great. You start having specific uh uh, you piss, you, you pee out everything you've got and all of a sudden your kidneys are messed up, right? And you get polydipsia where you, all of a sudden you get, you get a thirst rage where you've got to drink, 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 drink. And it's unsatisfiable, right? There are specific symptoms that if you don't get that priestess's breast milk, it's gone. You're, you're screwed. And uh, again, the toxinologist in Australia uh, whose name escapes me right now, who I consulted on uh, my chapter for Elsevier. I wrote a chapter for uh, a college text on the history of pharmacy uh, for incoming pharmacists um, uh, at a university level. And in that, I talk about the polyvalence of the pharmacology and toxicology that are involved here, right? So they're they're taking this young girl who's 10 years old. They start when she's seven, right? And they, they call her a palace and they give palace Athena. They give her uh, slits on her arm and they put a salve on her arm that has the venom in it. And they bandage it. And they do this, they do this chronically. And so supposedly when you took of her breast milk, when you drank her breast milk, it would ameliorate the ill side effects. So did she have some kind of antibody thing going on? I don't know. One thing that really stuck out in your book, The Chemical Muse, was the physician and philosopher relationship. You were talking about Pythagoras earlier, and it's, uh, you know, you joked about uh, the necromancy of evoking uh, Pythagoras if I brought up Jung. Quite frankly, I'd love for you to bring up Pythagoras. Uh, would you talk a little bit about the relationship between the people that were seen to be physicians and their experience with philosophy? Because they were they were not separate at the time. Because yeah, I, th right. I think that that sets us up in the kind of fusion of religion, um, medicine, botany. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, in antiquity, medicine is kind of the cultivator. It's the petri dish of all the other sciences. And it stays, it keeps this little universe where you, you can enter everything, but you got to go into medicine. So guys, we know Pythagoras from the Pythagorean theorem, you know, <laughs> A squared plus B squared equals C squared. But what we don't know is he wasn't, he was a, uh, uh, not just a mathematician, he was a physician. Number one, he was a physician. And as a physician, he's, uh, and he lived in a cave. He lives in a cave, beautiful cave. And he traveled all over the world, including Egypt, uh, uh, Persia, apprenticing with the kings, uh, excuse me, with the priests and the magi in order to learn uh, pharmacology and to learn some of the potent drugs that the magi were using. And these drugs were um, involved in uh, affecting outcome via image. Affecting outcome via image. That's what his real, his real uh, bent was. Anyway, the Neo-Pythagoreans and whatnot came after him. 
and they created this whole this whole uh, shelter for the magical sciences, for magic and medicine, you know, and whatnot. And we, we as a society, John, totally undercut what the magi of the late totally. Bronze Age, what they did, and the fact that kings used them as counselors for very, very specific and good reasons, and uh, the fact that they were so, they were the educated. They started with the stars, they studied the stars, they studied the motions of the stars. They studied mathematics that I can't, you know, can you predict the next eclipse without looking it up online? Not at all. No, of course. Yeah, neither could I. Not in a million years, right? But, but this is the kind this. of, yeah, this is what they figured out. They figured it out. They didn't, they derived this knowledge and they were the biggest drug users on the planet. Ones that you put in oils that you put on your skin. They had one, John. They called it the fire of Medea. Get this, get this. It was a, an oily, uh, uh, clear, translucent, um, uh, uh, almost to a jelly, but more oil. Okay, like a thick oil, really thick oil that they put on their skin all over and then covered their faces with a paint, very thick paint full of X, Y, and Z. And apparently when they lit themselves on fire, when they got within a certain amount of distance of a flame, their body would, a blue flame would cascade all over this oil on their body, just a slight blue flame all over their body, and their face would be covered, right? It wouldn't go on their face because their face was covered, right? A group of these guys were figuring out the chemistry of what was going on because they were using a petroleum product, right? It's the early, it's one of the early forms of what we, what we came to be called Greek fire. If you look this up in the, mm -hmm. in the Byzantine Suda, mm -hmm. it'll tell you, right? This Medea's fire ultimately came what they call Greek fire that they used on the ships, right? It's a napalm. It's like a napalm. Um, but if you, whoops, there we go. But if you uh, use this stuff in a modified form, you can put it on your body and have it react on your body without burning your skin. Now imagine these are the guys who are, who are experimenting with the venoms. And these are the guys who realize, oh, and one of the big inventions in the late Bronze Age is the use of something called oistron. Oistron. And what does oistron do? It is a chemical that allows a woman to induce birth, to start the process of her contractions. And it's a huge discovery by late bronze age sorceresses for lack of a better word <laughs> okay you understand yes when women who were following and we have one re record of one very prominent one that we're totally ignoring named medea who was so powerful that people came all the way across the mediterranean to see her into the black sea to see her perform something called breathing the fire which I've never seen a description of. I've never seen a, don't, we don't know what it was, but apparently she was the only one who could do it at 12 years old. And that's why we have to drink her urine. So grab her, put her on a ship and take her back to Greece with us. Right? That's what happened to her. She got basically kidnapped, right? But anyway, um, uh, uh, two sources that I found in Greek, Pausanias and uh, another who's named evades me now but i'll think of it in a second say that this experimentation with uh toxins 
uh, venoms was the beginning of medicine. And this is how it started because they realized, and the blacks see this, those Scythians with their arrows, they put the poison in their hair. Oh, can I introduce you to Medusa? Please. Yes, Medusa. Get this. Imagine an ancient priestess who has an oil in her hair that has a venom in it that when she draws her arrow across over her hair that drapes over, she pulls out the venom. She only needs a little bit onto her arrow and she can shoot you with that arrow and paralyze you. Wait, paralyze you, turn you to stone. But what's really cool is this group of people, the Scythians, they can shoot these arrows from the back of a galloping horse. They're so good. The Romans can't, can't, they, they lose a standard. They lose an army in, in uh, fighting them because they can shoot backwards at full gallop and they have poison arrows. The very word for the poison arrow, the EOS is the communion is that drug, right? It's the control of madness, that shamanism that you said you detected and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Do you see how that's all, it's all mm -hmm. interrelated in antiquity. It's the same stuff. So when the Magi come to Jesus uh, or come to his birth and they say, yeah, according to his star, this means that and that, right? He's the next one for this and X, Y. And notice in Revelation, he's calling himself the morning star. All of that is based in the magic tradition that is intermingled with drugs and medicine to create one person, a Christ, who can ejaculate the communion. That's why you need a naked boy. It's so totally out of my, I mean, these are ideas I've never contemplated or been exposed to. So, yeah. Well, and it's funny because you were talking about Medusa <laughs> and the, yeah. you know, what it brought up for me is I've heard the story of Medusa talked about, but oftentimes it's interpreted symbolically. You know, the idea that it's a reptilian part of the brain when she looks us in the eyes, we turn to stone. There's a petrification that happens. And of course, when we are scared, we become petrified, fight, flight, freeze. That there's, but that doesn't always, that doesn't go the full distance, but it's Medusa has been a story about uh, Perseus, for example, not looking directly at her, but looking indirectly through uh, the mirror image uh, right. on, on the on the shield that was uh, provided by a god. That there's that, right. so that's a kind of tool for us to approach our our way of living that can some way get beyond or move past our own tendencies to become frozen whenever we're overwhelmed. I mean, that's a the, go on. You you thought it was just an idea, but which is fine. The ideas are great because they're all in there. The idea with the mirror and all, it's all part of the myth. Yeah, right. But like the song for the performance, it's not the actual mystery they're talking about. There were real Medusae. What is a Medusae? It's just a temple guardian. It's, that's literally all it is. And it's based on the root, the M-E-D root, the M-E-D the root that we get Medea from. They were the guardians of the central oracle, the Medusae. You couldn't get within feet of her because you'd have to come to these Scythian archers who had perfection, perfect skill with poison arrows. So you don't have it. It doesn't matter if you have a sword or a spear, you're, you're screwed. You cannot get to her through these Medusae. 
How do we know that? Euripides talks about it. Euripides says, Arrest, uh, uh, Arrest, uh, sorry, Aeschylus, Orestes can't approach. Uh, no, this one is from Euripides. Uh, Aeschylus can't approach. Uh, sorry. Okay. The myth of Orestes, right? He flees, tries to get away. His mother kills his father, his fa- uh, and then he goes back to revenge his father, right? So, but on the way, he gets involved with the with his friend. He's with his buddy of his, and he gets involved at a temple. Um, Euripides writes about in the Iphigenia of uh, Taurus. Okay, she's in a temple there. It's his actually it's actually a relative, but he goes to the priestess there. And he's because he's committed murder, he can't, he's bound. And she says, it's okay, unbind him. They have the feathered arrows, and he doesn't try to attack her. He doesn't try to run. He doesn't try to do anything. They're gonna execute him for murder. Right? And really not for murder, just because he showed up at the wrong place at the wrong time, because that's what they did in some places. Right? This is kind of further east, right? We're getting to the, we're getting to some of the blackness of the, of the Black Sea. You know what I mean? And anyway, so um, he can't do it. Euripides pictures this. Uh, he can't do it because they're standing there with the arrows. They can shoot him any minute. They can kill, stop him any minute. The Athenians use Scythian archers as as a police force. So these are. This is not a make up world. The Medusa was just one of these temple guardians. Medea had 12 of them, and they all knew that we have talks about them. They're super athletic. They were great singers, all of them. Surprise, surprise. They all were great with, no, they were all, no. I think it was one of them. You had to be. They, uh, they were all equipped with drug knowledge. It said they, they kept her drugs. They kept all the simples. They kept everything, right? When she would be making them, she'd be telling them, go get me this, go get me that, right? So they worked with her in kind of a sorcerer way. Yet at the same time, they protected her. They technically were bodyguards. And now you can see why the nation of the Aryans, talk about some image, the nation of the Aryans, the Aryan people, switched their identity. They called themselves Medes after this woman, after Medea, who was so into the snake stuff and so into the crazy cures and the crazy fire. All of that stuff is there. And guess what? She's the one who perfects this mystery. She's Lady Babylon. Excuse me. She's Lady Babylon. And I'm not the one saying this. Petrarch is the one saying it. Boccaccio is the one saying it. Who are all using the Orphic code that the Magi used. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's pretty mind-blowing, Amon. It really is. Yeah. Well, Go, go there, though, for a second, because one thing I wanted to talk to you about is uh, kind of a comparative analysis of, of, of the, the misgivings of today, you know, the kind of assumptions that we, that we have of whether it's religion or religious institutions and how that's been affected by power structures and governments and, you know, institution, institutions. But the, the, the role that women play is very different than many people would believe. Talk, talk about that for a bit. Tell me about women in antiquity. Yeah, so particularly on the cult side that I've studied and the medical side, the women have a predominant position. Even on the medical side, there are texts from Hippocrates that say, don't go to the male physicians because they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> it was the midwives. It was, yeah, 
It was the midwives and the earliest, the earliest uh, drugs in the Hippocratic corpus, right? The corpus of works around Hippocrates. The earliest drugs are all the midwifery drugs. It's things to stop bleeding during menstruation or during mostly during childbirth. Mm-hmm. It's to stop the, cause that's what a lot of women are dying from is from bleeding. And so how do you, what drugs do you use? How do you stop from getting pregnant? Right. There's, there's a, ton of abortifacients they use in the ancient world a ton of chemical abortifacients you put them in the you can you can they even they dose them by stones they use little pebbles right and you take a little pebble and you coat it with the medicine and the midwife would say insert three of those right put three of those in it's medicine beautiful amazing medicine right when medea landed on italy and cured the guy who had been bitten by the snake they built a freaking temple to her. They built a temple to her. There's one in Rome too. They built a temple to her and turned it into like a hospital. It's what you would think of as a hospital, but you know, where they administer drugs and give you treatment for whatever. And they got little, I've even seen bro- broken bones reset with incantations. And I was trying to figure out what the heck, what is going on? It's all timing, pull, and you speak da 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 da, pull. It's all reduction right? The process of reducing a, a fracture. Amazing stuff. Yeah. And the women are predominant. That was your question. The women are predominant. Yeah. yeah. But in, in, what happened there? I mean, because the way you're talking about it, if if the if religions, all these cults are looked at and women are central figures, something happened that changed that quickly. What went on? Yeah. The... Um, the closest I've rubbed up against that is uh, there's no word for homosexuality in ancient Greek. Isn't that shocking? There's no word for homosexuality. There's no, it doesn't exist. But we know that Achilles and Patroclus are, are homosexual, what you and I would call homosexual lovers. So around the third century, the act of sodomy was recognized, right? And Aristophanes has all sorts of what we would call homosexual jokes, right? I'm so interested. When you wrote about comedy and Aristophanes, I'm so interested. I don't want to interrupt, but keep going. But I want to circle back to that. Yeah, Kinesius, right? Right. Anyway, that's the guy who has, yeah, right. Um, uh, Yeah, there's a lot there. You know, there's a medicated dildo that shows up in Aristophanes. They chased him around because of, they were going to kill him. Uh, uh, Sorry. Anyway, um, uh, why did the, you were asking why the women predominate? We yeah, you were talking about no word for homosexuality and that um, Achilles and yeah, we know that they understand what homosexuality is, but they have no word for it. They have no mm-hmm. word for it, right? It doesn't exist. You can have sex with a man can have sex with a man or a man can have sex with a woman. You know, it's just sex, right? It wasn't a thing. When it uh, becomes m- made a thing is when it becomes made a thing at the same time. The drugs became made a thing, hmm. right? They became a byword, a something that only a bad person possessed by the devil would use. There was a Nancy Reagan era before in antiquity, in the, the third and fourth centuries AD, there was a Nancy Reagan movement that outlawed drugs in order to advance a Christian agenda. And the Christians came along, the bishops came along and said, no, tell everybody we're not, no priest will give any sort of communion uh, from a plant, from a plant or an animal substance. You stop using those. (laughs) 
So people think, oh, the early Christians, you know, like, oh, maybe one or two of them used drugs. No, the early Christians even had to be told by their leaders, stop using that drug. Paul had to go back into where John was baptizing. You know what Baptists do with little boys? They go out on, on little meetings in the wilderness, right? They go out for hikes and they carry little cups shaped like penis, says Virgil. They're penis, glass penis. And you go out with your glass penis and your little boy, and by the means of that little boy, you pull back and enter a realm that only a Baptist can know. Followers of Enoch. We're all reading Enoch, right? We all know what we have to do to get there. And if we have to have a little boy, well, you know, right? It's chemical. Why mm -hmm. be upset about it? It's chemical, right? The boy is a factory. So bring him into the process. The Romans got in trouble, uh, got the Christians in trouble for this uh, in Alexandria because they were taking children off the street, young boys, raping them, putting them through a rape ritual, and then pumping it out as a catechumen's necessary experience, at which they said they had to psychologically, not psychologically, they said that we had to counsel, give encouragement for several weeks to the boys who had been through the process because it's so they're presented with the temptation of Lucifer by a priest, wait, a priest who gets possessed by the devil and then sodomizes them. And their job is to cry out it's wrong and to rebuke the sin. And if you, they can make it through that, then they can make it through anything. Okay. That is a lot to absorb. Go back. You got to drug were... them now. You got to drug the boys in order to get them to that stage. You got you got to drug them in order to get them to that stage. It just doesn't. It doesn't even for a second. It's horrendous. So how? Go, go back for a second. How how does yeah. how do homosexuality or the relationship with sexuality in general and drugs? How do they come online at the same time? Or the 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 power looking down on. They have to, they're made taboo at the very same time in history. They're made taboo. And it's a multi-pronged effect by the Christian leadership in Rome to be able to take total control. You have to have any of the ancient historians will tell you, you got to have 30% of your population. As soon as you get 30% of your population, it doesn't matter what you do. As long as you have 30% of a completely loyal population, you can run the government. You can do anything. You can take over the government. You can run. You've got to have your 30%. Thomas Jefferson, by the way, I, just because of the events that have happened, this was on my mind. Thomas Jefferson, the muse gave me a few minutes with Thomas Jefferson the other day. And Thomas Jefferson said in a letter to Dr. Cooper, he said, the greatest threat to the fledgling American democracy is the Christian church. He said, the tree of liberty must be nourished with the blood of patriots and tyrants. If you don't water that tree, that's such an ancient concept. That's right out of the heart of Rome. Isn't that interesting? Thomas Jefferson, who was himself a classicist and wrote in Greek, ancient Greek. He composed ancient Greek poems. It's amazing. Uh, uh, crazy. It, it's interesting that you bring up kind of the current day with, because I couldn't help when I was reading The Chemical Muse thinking about, you know, the way you would define, you know, we're not a democracy, we're a dem democratic republic thinking about right. 
drugs, sex, uh, the, the way in which the government is structured, the relationship with power, patriarchy, and women, the relationship mm -hmm. with the, the politics surrounding women's reproductive health. That's all. Right, that, right. That's, that's all. None of that's new. <laughs> none of that is new. It's a cycle. We've been there. We're in the third century. Hello, we're in the, th I'm, I'm here to tell you a message from the past. You guys are in the third century. You're totally there. And uh, if his attempt to come to power was an attempt of Const Constantine's proportion, that's what was really happening. That's what, and if he fails, the Republic will be restored. It's just, and how do, how do we get there? We get there by certain, you know, we, we drag out the witches and we burn them, you know, because we're inquisitors and that's what we do. If you ever want to read something really interesting, read the documents of the Inquisition. I'm reading the trials right now of the witches and the stuff that they did. And it so reflects what they did in antiquity. It's so beautiful, beautifully horrific because they're killing these people, burning them alive, right? And so this struggle that you're seeing going on, I guarantee you, why is somebody talking about demon semen, right, in politics? Why are there babies being eaten? Last time I heard there were vampires drinking baby blood or something like that. Yeah, it's one of the conspiracy theories, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Why is that stuff even out there right now? In the kind of imagination of, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. How does that fit into the same historical cycle that they went through in the third and fourth centuries AD? It's the same. It's patterns. It's patterns. Pattern recognition, right? Isn't that, that's right up. Wisdom. You know, but neuroscience, it's just fucking neuroscience, right? Mm -hmm. It's just mm -hmm. neuroscience. Watch what's going on and watch what happens to the witches and watch what the, but I still want to find out, John, my number one priority uh, uh, is to find out and my phone is telling me I only have 10% left, but it's my number one priority is to find out why Jesus was arrested with that boy. Why has that been swept into the back closet? There is such a world that we don't even realize that we're looking at, right? And it's not conspiracy. There are texts out there. For those of you who want to go search them up, search them up. There are texts out there. I gave you notice today. I could give you the names of ancient doctors. I could give you the names of ancient uh, antidote specialists. I could give you the names of just general, general physicians who deal with these drugs on the side and have a, have a section, well, what about sacred drugs? What about the drugs that they're using for, you know, because you got to have antidotes for all that stuff. When a guy comes in your office and he's whacked out on something, you have to have antidotes. What about all of that material? And why is Jesus using the language that is built? You asked about women. The Apocalypse of John was not written by a man. It was not written by a man. John overwrote what was already there. And the proof is he has, uh, Jesus is presented, the morning star, as having breasts. Why? Because the Apocalypse is an older production of the Sibyls, which the Christians themselves recognize as being prophetic, divinely prophetic. And in it, the central character, the morning star, has breasts that she milks, that are milked, that provide the healing, right? She's the morning star. By the way, that's what they call the drug, morning star. That's She's so the one. I just, I just saw an opera called Saul, and it, it kind of clicks there. At one point, there's this figure that emerges from the ground, and Saul 
it's a it's a male figure, but but the male figure has breasts, and Saul drinks from her breasts, mm-hmm. and it didn't. There, there there was yeah, it didn't make sense to me, but it starts to make sense when you when you start to talk about these references. That I and and a point of note when you're talking about this uh, Mark fifty one and fifty two and what's mm-hmm. going on there. My question is, you know, you 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 say politically follow the money, always yeah. follow the money. Yeah. My question is, follow the money. Who 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 is benefited by any of these ideas or realities being obstructed or obscured through history? And Correct. and and then you get to something really interesting, which is there, because I'm shocked. I mean, I I, I don't, uh, you know. This this is so totally out of my typical like religious worldview where I'm talking about, you know, morality and the sacred and the kind of rituals that people have. And and certainly we're moving into traditions current day where psychedelics or, or entheogens are becoming um, useful in clinical settings, which I, I right. find to be important and potent. And the, yeah. the the research on this is wild. But when you look at antiquity and we learn that these from from the <laughs> you really it really does bring a new idea to the word profane when you look at this kind of profane uh, sexual um altered state um you know religious rites h- how somebody makes sense of their world and atones for whatever they need to atone or be initiated into whatever they need to be initiated into Mm-hmm. This is, uh, I, I mean, no, this is wild. This is like uh, horrible. And, and then, <laughs> and then I, I, I got to say that, there, look, I'm a psychotherapist. I work with sexual trauma all the time. I think the, the current, and I, I'm pretty sure, I'll look this up, look in the resource page down below to see, I'll, I'll post the current data. I think it is one in three women have have been sexually abused and one in six men. And so if we just simply take that as a current day reality with all of our you know awarenesses and morality and our legislation and our legal system one in three and one in six and all of a sudden it's contextualized in a bit of a different way to say sex drugs and, and and certainly violations that were included or incorporated into religious rites of passage and rituals it's not a total leap it 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 makes some the, degree the of best, sense the best reaction i ever had from somebody who read something or came to a conference i gave a paper i gave was the gentleman and forgive me i've forgotten his uh, first name now but he was in the he was the one who the movie was made about. It was This was in Boston. I was giving a paper in Gloucester to the Writers Club. And in came a gentleman after the presentation that I gave, which was on uh, mystery rights. Uh, he came to me and he said, with tears in his eyes, he said, I'm so-and-so. He introduced himself. I'm so-and-so. Um, I was involved with Bernard Law, with Cardinal Law, and the getting this case started. He's the guy who got the case started against Law. Um, and he said what you've done with tears in his eyes. I'll never forget it. He said, what you've done in uh, describing what the priests in the ancient world were doing and what their justification for it was, he said, you have grasped onto something that I saw in my priest abuser. He said, you don't understand. He said, you have, you have 
somehow taken out of that priest that, that did that to me, and you've put it uh, into this, uh, into what was in the hearts of the men who did it in the ancient world. It's a real phenomenon. You know, it's not, this is the real world. And if we don't talk about it, why this religious phenomenon of priests with boys, right? Why, why, why is this permeating right now? Is there something in society that's permeating? It's the vampires drinking the baby blood, right? Maybe we can throw in some anti-Semitic tropes and we can turn it into something that we had in the Middle Ages. Maybe a plague, that would be cool, right? It's the witches. Let's kill all the witches. Maybe we'll get back to normal, right? Do you see how things are, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like a pattern, anyway. Well, we've got, a, I know you've got a, a reduction in your percentage of battery juice and we got to finish in five minutes, but I'm, okay. I'm shocked and dismayed and totally stirred up and interested. And what does Otto say? The, uh, you know, it's funny. I never knew about this when I was studying early. They don't teach you this stuff. What, what, um, Rudolf Otto talks about with the Mysterium Fascinatium et, um, et Tremendum. You know, the, the thing mm. that scares you and fascinates you simultaneously, you know, mm. that religion is, is not uh, the true essence of religion is more like the way that Job is approached by God in the form of this, you know, what the fuck do you, I, I, I'm, you know, a whirlwind and the Leviathan and the yeah. behemoth and the, like, the, we, we forget that these if we're not in a state of discomfort and and being cracked open, then we're staying pretty safe. And I think that it's important to, I'm with you, I think it's important to, ex, to have these conversations in order to really take an honest look at, at what is permeating guess, our reality. I guess as a client, I would ask as, a, as somebody who cracks the mind and works with the mind, would you consider using uh, a medical procedure that really you know would you consider tying up your patients and inducing psychosis and getting them into a state of where your very words were reaching into the things that they didn't want you to pull out could you do that and could you do it verbally with them i couldn't do it but i think there are times where because again there's a metaphor there there are times when people come into psychotherapy and they're frozen and they are unable to access, and because of genuine connection and human relationship, they may have faith enough to say, I'll take this risk. I'll share this thing with you I've never shared with anybody else. I'm tied up, I'm bound up, I've been bound up my entire life, and it's affecting the way in which I live my life. And eventually when a, a relationship has trust, then somebody can feel able to begin to untie that and to begin to express themselves. I wonder if you could found a surgery, an entheogenic surgery clinic, where instead <laughs> of being like the doctor, you know what I mean? Where you yeah. have to go in invasive, you have to give them anesthetic and yeah. you've got to put them down. You know what I mean? And then you open them up mentally. You could be uh, uh, like an aggressive, like a surgeon. I just think, I mean, I truly, uh, Amin, I think that happens. I, I think that happens to a lesser degree in psychotherapy. If Again, if somebody consents. You know, it's it's the the thing, you know, we've got ethical codes around the, you know, tied up, of course, but we are tied up. Again, back to that symbolic language, like in a number of ways, we're all tied up. 
Right, right. Because Which because is... we've been taught not to ask questions. We stay safe. Right. We're pack right. animals. We, you know, for all those reasons. And part We're of bound, the process, yeah. yeah, we are bound. And part of the process is unbinding because a relational wound oftentimes has to be cured by some radical experience, which is what you're getting at, or a relational wound is cured in relationship. That's and, devilry. That's pure devilry. And first time the Inquisition shows up, I'm reporting you <laughs> as a wizard. Definitely. That's pure. That's pure devilry. But you can see it's the same. What you're doing is you're a total magician. That's exactly what, in the right environment with the right words and the right drugs, apparently uh, uh, there can be healing. There can be healing, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Okay, we yeah. got to finish. Is there anything else? Okay. Uh, I, where do I direct people? I mean, I'm certainly going to have links to your books, but where do I, websites, anything like that? You want to point people in any direction? No, I don't have okay. any websites or anything like that. I would point people in one direction. Uh, read the Bible and nobody reads the Bible anymore. Why does nobody read the Bible? Yeah. Read I the Bible. You think I'm, st <laughs> you I'm, think I'm, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm not totally. Yeah. I'm not read it because it's one of the cultural, uh, it's one of the cultural pillars that's holding up the society as we see it happening right now. Right. So why wouldn't you want to go to those primary sources? If I could say one thing to your audience, it's go to those prime. Number one, uh, don't come to John unless you want some, serious surgery which he's going to perfect over time <laughs> you should perfect the surgery you should perfect this mental surgery seriously wouldn't that be neat like it would be active active uh what would you call it so is it psychoanalysis you could do psychoanalysis with somebody under the influence mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well they're doing that i mean that's what the well it's 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 well i gotta go so um okay 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 <laughs> thank you all right Oh, wait.